Aloha, and welcome to another Candid Conversation. We're blessed today to be joined by Metz Kramer, who is up in the bush in Quebec, north of Ottawa, at a family reunion. <laughs> Nancy, great to see you. Thank you for breaking away to spend some time with us. Good to see you too, Ron. It's uh, Everyone needs a little reprieve. <laughs> um, the blog that you posted that's going up tomorrow night um, is talking about service as a savior and um, all of the fear that seems to be out there from everybody in the economic world and the business channels and that there's a recession and we're in trouble and and you seem to be taking a different stance and I agree with that approach you're taking 100%. So why don't you share it with the audience? So I, I was lucky enough to get out again and, and work with a bunch of dealers over the a couple of weeks of traveling around. Um, and, you know, it's true. People are talking about, is the is there a slowdown coming? Uh, and this time, though, the slowdown, I'm in a different place if there's a slowdown coming. Um, I'm seeing a different end of the market. You know, uh, the first one was actually when I started my career, I was at a cat dealership and I didn't really notice the, the the most way we noticed the slowdown it was like a lot of my friends didn't get jobs out of school that's how we knew it was a slow reset and a slow economy but you know i went into service and the shop was full so i never noticed that uh, the second slowdown i noticed in the economy was the 2008 uh crash and i had just joined terex and i had just joined terex in a capacity of um, creating more service products and trying to move Terex dealers and factories forward in their service position. So, um, you know, sure enough, everything stopped and uh, the factories, some of them saw like 85% drop in sales. And so I started calling around some of my friends uh, at different uh, cat dealers. And the answer was all the same. Like, we're busy. Like, we're not selling machines, we're fixing them. The shops are full and they're getting fuller. You know, people are bringing stuff in to fix it rather than bringing stuff in uh, just for ma maintenance. And so as I traveled around, um, the same thought came back. Now I'm working with dealers with, with a, not a very strong um, focus on service. They, they have like a, a service mentality. They, they support the equipment they put out, but it's not as often service for profit. They don't see service as a profit center. And so it, it becomes service to um, keep sales going. It becomes service to keep rentals going. Um, but then you start to realize that if we do get a slowdown, um, service is the one thing that will keep going. It will keep people busy. Uh, the biggest tragedy, tragedy is that people will, you know, go so slow if they don't have a real service focus that their technicians will have to be, be let go. So, so that's where this blog comes from is if this economy is slowing down, it's important for dealers to start thinking about how are they engaging their customers? And you and I spent a lot of time talking about digital engagement, talking about, you know, um, measuring engagement, uh, what that all means, you know, and, and service is a huge measure of engagement. Yeah, it's a, absolutely true. And, you know, I share a similar experience, Mets, even though I started earlier. Every time there was a slowdown, you know, we were almost trained that when the market slowed down, that's the one that you invested more money. That's when you got market share. Yeah. 
That's when a lot of people pulled in their horns, let people go. So capacity in the industry was going away. What's really interesting this time is as, as you, I spent a lot of time talking to a lot of different dealers and 21, 2021 was one of the biggest years they've ever had on record. And almost everybody I talked to more revenue. Oh, yeah. than profit. Yep. Absolutely. The, I, I remember, I also remember talking to people in like 2009, 2010, some big dealers who had their most profitable years ever. Yep. You yep. know, they, they trimmed the fat a little bit and um, service and parts were very strong. And so margins were really good. Best years ever. The, there's, there's a conflict. I've just finished a, a, a learning blog that'll come out in a couple of weeks or a month about what's happened during the pandemic. And there's some really interesting circumstances that um, are out there. There's 11 million job openings right now in America. Yeah. There's 6 million people that are on unemployment. <laughs> We've never had that big a gap ever. Yeah. Yeah. The backlog of money in the programs that have been put out over the last four years for highway construction, bridges, dams, roads, and it hasn't been spent yet. The only real trouble I see for the industry out there is they don't have as usual access to equipment. So they're having to scramble a little bit more. Yeah. New equipment is definitely a problem. You know, the rental people are holding their equipment. They're not letting it go to secondary markets. Um, People are holding equipment longer if they bought it new. Um, But that, if nothing else, that should speak to the fact that while we may see the economy slowing or we may see sales slow down some, um, the equipment's out there working. Yeah. I mean, I think good measure is check out rental yards. If they're full, then that's probably a real sign. If the rental yards are still pretty empty, that is a good sign that people will keep working. So fundamental truth is in a slowdown, people will not replace new equipment, old equipment with new equipment. That's that's the yeah. number one strategy that they seem to employ. Yeah, and you can't get CapEx. Yeah. And and now with interest rates going up, they anticipate there's another meeting Wednesday, and they're anticipating another three quarters of, of a point. We're seeing a slowdown in in purchases of homes, but we're yeah. not seeing a slowdown of building new homes. We're seeing, in fact, building new homes is held back because they can't find workers. Yeah, yeah. There's lots of pent up demand. Big big time. That that yeah. twenty to twenty two. Let me call it. I, I call it 27 months. A lot of people have got reflected on their lives a little bit and they're doing different things and working from home is changing the dynamics and the zoom and teams like what we're doing that weren't there 10 years ago has, yeah. has made significant differences. Customer service has an opportunity to be able to take advantage of a lot of people that retired because <laughs> they can work from home for a couple of three days and be happy to do it. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So service has or is now a savior because the older equipment needs to be repaired and brought up to speed. It needs to keep working. Yes. So the 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 real bugaboo in service is finding and keeping talented people. 
Yeah. The backlogs are getting longer. Yeah. Customer satisfaction is going down because we can't turn the machine around fast enough. Yeah. We're starting to see supply problems on the parts. Some of the Bobcat parts that I've been involved with, Bobcat dealers are not available in the world and won't be for another 90 to 120 days. These are high controller controls. It's, it's, it's amazing yeah. today. So our industry in the product support world is not doesn't really matter what happens economically. We're going to continue on. We are. And, and you know, the, the equivalent would be say like saying, oh, um, you know, it's hard to find machines, so I'm going to give up on sales. Mm-hmm. Like there, there isn't a, a dealership out there that would give up on sales. It's obviously driven by most often by salespeople and they will find business. They will find a way to do business. And yet sometimes you hear the same kind of approach to service. It's like, well, it's hard to find technicians. So we don't really want to get into the service business. And, you know, you tie that back to engagement. Like if you are not, if you're putting equipment into the market and you are not servicing it, someone else is. Yeah. So, and, and that is the open door. I I always loved coming into service when I started and, you know, everyone proudly says, you know, sales sells the service first machine and service sells the rest. So this shouldn't be a time that we shy away from service. In, In fact, if I was running a service department, this would be the time that I really start one prepping, communicating with my customers and two start looking for those people that maybe come free because where they work now, and I'm talking technicians where they work now, they're not focused on it and they may not have to work. And this is my chance to, to pick up technicians too. That, that brings me to another part of, of the whole service department. Service managers have always been slow to hire people. Yeah. And at the same time, well, what they say is, I don't want to bring somebody in. I'd rather have overtime. So now we're sitting at 50, 60 hours a week, including overtime for everybody, sometimes Saturdays. The technicians don't mind the money, but it becomes dangerous. Unsafe working conditions start to pop up. But what the service managers over my career have said to me is, no, I'm going to delay hiring that guy, even though my overtime's high. Yeah. And Bill Piles puts out a blog, I think it might have been last week, it might be, I think it was last week, on guidelines for staffing in the service department. Yeah. And the reason that the service managers give for not wanting to hire is because they're the ones that have to lay them off. I don't know why anybody ever lays off a technician, ever. I, it's No, I, I remember hearing this great story from even before I was in the industry at Torma where during like the early eighties slowdown, the dealership literally called up customers and said, let's make a deal. You know, you bring your equipment in, we'll keep the, the mechanics busy and we'll figure out who and when to pay. You know, it's, it was about making sure that the technicians stayed busy and that we kept the technicians. So I don't understand why anyone would lay them off, especially when we spend all these years complaining about not being able to find them. Yep. You know, Um, and, and the fact that, you know, you and I've talked about it a lot. There are lots of dealers out there who we know do not even touch a small fraction of the amount of service work that's available to them. Yeah. What, what over the years, best in class, I think it was as high as 35% market share of the labor on their equipment. 
And yeah. um, mo most normally it was somewhere between 10 and 15%, which is unbelievable. You go to a dealership, they got a hundred technicians and that represents to make the arithmetic easy, 10% of the labor market. There's a thousand, there's 900 other mechanics out there working on your equipment and yet yeah. they're not going to hire people. Yeah. It's funny, right? Oh, I, I mean, it's like we don't in service, we don't approach service like it's, um, and we have all these metrics, but we don't measure the business. You know, we don't really, we, we run service like, like it is day to day. We run it strategically. It's reactionary. It's like, oh, we we, we're really trying to hire people, but you know, if we got find some, we'll do it. We don't look at the business and say, look, this is the business I need to service. This is, this is the volume. This is the fleets. This is the customer equipment. This is what I need to service. And so if I scale my business to that, this is what it needs to look like. I've never been part of a, an operation or heard of one where the service department approached it. Like if I want hundred percent market share of all the machines I've sent out and I could service, this is the size of a business I need to have. How am I going to build a service organization that meets the, meets my customers' needs, meets my customers' requests, you know? And I remember years ago, the French, the Caterpillar dealer in France, Bezorek Mauvoyer, had their market share on labor was north of 80, 85%. Mm -hmm. They had one technician. If my number, if my memory is right, it was one technician for either 10 or 20 machines. Yeah. That's it. That, that technician was assigned to those customers. And so if they had 20,000 machines in the territory and it was 20, they had 1,000 or whatever technicians it life was really simple they had that type of structure yeah no longer the case because somebody else came in and, and started looking at profitability and and that opens up a whole another aspect of how we report things service is an area nobody understands it's the it's the group behind that wall back there and they don't treat it as a as a, as a profession it, they don't treat it as a, a professional business and it's it's the core behind the profitability of the dealership. Yeah. And yet I've struggled at times with different organizations to get people to believe that both in management and even the people running service day to day, that it could be profitable. It should be profitable. And, and I think that's one of the reasons I changed focus in the blog on like, look, running full out service, you know, for everything is tough, but everyone hates maintenance. No one really likes to run their own. And if you can't meet the demands for everything, then at least make sure you find a way to connect with your customers. Like don't, don't let it stop you from being engaged with all of your customers to some meaningful way to understand what all the equipment is doing because you can't run full service. At least find, you know, like maintenance programs so that you have some engagement. Because it, it's still important to be engaged, even if you can't do everything. I, I think we've, we've got, you know, Dale Hanna with Foresight Intelligence does exactly that as far as engagement. But the, the other part of things that I think we're at an inflection point, a transition where we're going to be selling programs like the waterboard or the electrical grid, where because of GPS and sensors everywhere, we're going to be able to sell programs where we'll look after your machines, sir. As long as you follow my advice, if I call you up at two in the afternoon and tell you to shut the machine down, 
Mm-hmm. I'd like you to do it. And we're going to schedule a service for you next Thursday at seven o'clock at night. And I, I expect the machine to be where it's supposed to be because we're yeah. going to deploy everything. I, the, the whole world is changing from the old blacksmith day when the best mechanic was the guy that had the strongest back. I don't know if he would look, but the, the technicians today have to be awfully smart. The electronics and the hydraulics and the equipment, computerizations and engines and final drives and transmissions, it's incredible today. Yep. And yet yep. we still treat them. You know, there was <laughs> there was a case in California about 20 years ago where the dealership had their Christmas party and the technicians, almost to a man, their hands were in their pockets because they couldn't get the grease out from underneath their fingernails or embarrassed. <laughs> You know, so today in California, they wear lanolin line gloves so that that doesn't happen anymore. I mean, we got a bunch of what? Yeah, that started happening. What is this? That started on my flash. I watched. I bought. I bought gloves for people for sure. (laughs) It's all manner of things. I was really pleased at at the um, the content of that blog. That service really needs to become the forefront of everybody's head. That, that should almost be um, the number one issue. Um, and yep. how, how we manage service has to change. When you came in, you know, inspecting machines before you give a quote, quoting on everything, having times. Imagine if we guaranteed the price and the completion date on every work order. Yeah. Yeah. If people are scared. We'll, we'll give you back 500 bucks, you know. People are scared. There, There's a... We, we like to hide a little bit behind the unpredictability of our industry, but to some degree, it's also co- just cultural. We kind of like just going out and trying to figure it out and then, you know, and and not build the systems in service to be more predictable, to be more like the automotive world. Um, it, it's a little safe. I mean, you don't, you don't have to put your neck out and quote something and hope you get it right. But on the other side, what I've seen so much is because we don't set expectations because we don't quote and because we don't communicate to technicians like this is the time that just it happens when it happens you know i've run like machine rebuilds over the years and done a couple of them like totally project managed every day what is the schedule what's going to be done when what is the time expectation on everything and it happens people can hit the times but then I was like, sometimes I'm stunned. We do like a half million dollar rebuild. It's a half million dollar project. I mean, I've got a brother-in-law that works for the city and he's doing a weight scale and it's a $120,000 project and he's working on it for months. You know, we, we hand over a half million dollar rebuild on a machine to a mechanic and say, uh, good luck. <laughs> try, try and get it done in, you know, so many weeks. And we don't help with like project management and timing and organization. So we have to step up. Like you said, you know, it's not on the forefront of our minds. And to some degree, I think we service background people. It's also up to us to communicate where, where the value of service lies and, and why it's important and what the opportunity is that we see instead of just spending our day, you know, getting everything fixed. When I started out at the Quebec Caterpillar dealer, we used to hire 
engineers to come in as assistant service managers. Yeah. What we were trying to do is have the service management become business management rather than technical management. Yeah. Historically, what we'd always done is promoted the best mechanic to be the manager. So you take yeah. the best wrench out of the, the shop and, and make him a best manager. And, and so rhetorically, I would come back and say, well, do you take your best salesman and make him the sales manager? Or do you take your best hockey player and they're the manager of the team or the best basketball player? And, you know, Wayne Gretzky, one of the best hockey players ever, um, failed miserably as a coach. These superstar athletes are very rarely the good leaders. Scotty Bowman played hockey, sure, but he had a a problem with his eyesight and he became one of the best coaches out there. It's a remarkable deal. Just moving from the technical expertise to the business expertise. And, and you're right. It's up to us to communicate to people. But, you know, that, that goes back to I feel like I'm a mule brain in a tin barn. I make a lot of noise, but nobody follows. Advice, you know, it's it's remarkable. <laughs> it, it is. But it, you know, it is like many of the things you and I talk about. One of those things that will find its maturation point in some organization in a significant organization that sets new standards yep. for how it, how it can and should be done. Um, and we'll put others at disadvantage. They, they will just provide top of the shelf, top shelf service, and they'll figure out how to draw in whatever make as well. Typically that's, you know, the, the market leader is rarely the one that drives change. They're, oh, no, they're, they're happy. They're conservative. They got control of it. Right. Yeah, it's it's the Pepsi challenge, Coke's the real thing, that type of thing. And so it isn't typically the market leader. But, you know, there's some weird things. Go back to the economy and the recession. Do you know that American savings are today four trillion dollars higher than they were when the pandemic started? Wow. And 68 percent of the people that got government money. You remember the assistance program? Yeah need more money when they weren't working than they did when they were working. Yeah. <laughs> that lights some people up. <laughs> well, it, it, it really has been shocking, but the net effect of that is we're so, we have so much cash out there. It's, it's unbelievable. There's a massive amount of cash. Like there's, there's going to be no shortage of cash, even in an economic downturn and people are going to be looking to spend it, you know, and uh, think of all those venture capital companies, that just have trillions of cash on hand and they're looking for places. I, I keep trying to convince those kind of people that there is really good profitability available in our industry to, to capitalize some of these people. Like I, I work with a lot of independent rental agencies too. And there's an organize, those are organizations that haven't been catered to. They have built their business. They know multiple brands. They service any brand. They switch between brands. Um, They know how to supply themselves with whatever they need as far as parts. Yeah, they struggle nowadays because some of the dealers, the OEM dealers have certain services tied up, but I can't see that lasting forever either. There there is technology out there in the third-party world that can do what dealer software can do. but some of these people are flexible, you know, it's, if you want to look at 
where will it come from? Where will that knowledge to change the industry? I, I put my money in some of those places. These, you know, independent rental houses that are very flexible thinking. We have three different businesses, if you think about it. We've got new equipment, we've got used equipment, and we've got rental equipment. And, and product support yep. and, and administration is supporting those three avenues. Yes, we've got independent sales of parts, but the, the activity that we get into in the parts and service world is basically supporting our equipment. We don't aggressively go out and try and do maintenance work on a brand we don't represent. Yep. It's it's kind of, and somebody's going to come out and say, hey, wait a second, it, we're going to create the Napa in parts for construction equipment, and we're going to have the Mr. Goodwrench or the Midas Muffler or you know yeah. the independent mechanic be organized as well. It's it's not that far away. Actually, I know one company already that's um, trying to is providing basically a connection platform. So instead of holding all being like Napa and holding inventory of everything, um, connecting all the inventories and making it easy to transact it. So. I, I've been trying to do that my whole life at Finning. We had 53 stores. Yep. And we treated each store like an independent business. Yeah. And then what we did was we said, okay, this, this 53 stores is actually seven regional businesses. Yep. And then we started setting up a hierarchy. And as a result of that, we took over 20% of the inventory out and gave better levels of service. Yep. It's, you know, return on capital employed, like you say, once once Wall Street or the money people, hedge funds and others start realizing how much we actually make return on capital employed. Uh, yeah. You know, if, if you manage the business well, Mets, the only thing that outstrips this is pharmaceutical, the legal pharmaceuticals, the illegal pharmaceuticals outstrip everybody. But <laughs> we don't need to we don't need to talk about that one. Yeah, I actually had a conversation a year ago with a company that has their inventory management software and like the supply chain measurement so tight that they they feel like they can basically run a third-party logistics inventory for inside a dealer and insure it and basically insure it like an insurance model for the the delivery so it it, the data is there well sure and and you know somebody there's a lot of a lot of investment in parts inventories the other the other side of that table stay with service for a little longer how we manage tool rooms is disgusting (laughs) really it's in a it's in a cage on the floor in the shop and no record of who uses and doesn't use I, I, for years, I've been trying to get everybody take those tools, put them in the warehouse, give them a tool number, give them a bin location, give them a price. And when the guy <laughs> needs the tool, have him place an order for it. When he returns it, have a restocking charge that becomes a tool charge on the bill. I like this. And everybody says, you can't do that. You know, you got a, you got a, a, a transmission test bench. Yeah. A hundred thousand bucks. Yeah. And I'm going to give that away for free. Get out of town. There's no way in the world. I got to be able to replace that at some point in time. Well, my favorite is, is uh, trucks, service trucks with cranes, you know, 
the, the massive investment in the crane and the size of the truck to have the crane and the number of times it actually comes out of its cradle. Yep. You know, and we get no extra money for it, you know, I, I and it's funny. It's so regional. And, and this, I think is a good measure of, like, once you start seeing it, that, that you can measure these things, like th- they're culturally independent in different regions and yet when you look at how it's done in different places, suddenly you're like, oh my goodness, there's a model, like there's an actual Precisely. revenue and billing model you know, in, in places where they won't justify big trucks. And it's culturally not necessary to have big trucks with cranes. It's easy for them to get a crane charge when they have to rent a crane to bring a crane to site to lift an engine or whatever. And then they, you know, they bill whatever, 500 bucks for the crane to come in and do it. But and, and this is like often East, like out here where I am in Quebec, you know, they all run around in F-350s with these space caps on them or sprinters and stuff. And then you go out West and you you f- won't find a tech that'll drive one of those. They got to have a big truck with a crane, but they can't get any money for the crane either. And they don't get that much more per hour to justify it or that much more per mile to bring it out. And then, so, if you go, like you say, culturally and geographically, you go to Europe, a lot of the field service vehicles are vans. We've got this big macho world. We got to have a, a two ton freight liner, you yeah. know, with the five ton crane and outriggers and blah, blah, blah. And <laughs> it's when I, you could, you can look at my career, the, the 50 years and take it before and after the first 20 years. I, I never hardly ever saw a two ton truck. Yeah. And the last 20 years you get out into the wildness, the West, the West. It's got to be a two-ton truck. Yeah, I mean, four-wheel drive. Get out I of had, You know, I had to find just the right guy that would take a sprinter, a well-equipped, you know, thirty-five hundred sprinter instead of a full truck out in the West. But and, and the favorite one I've ever seen was when I with this was with Terex in the UK, and they had a motorcycle yeah. inside inside London because it could get around faster and could do like four or five service calls in a day. And a car would be stuck in traffic all day. Yeah, average 50 miles an hour. Yeah. So, I mean, like all those things are, you know, most of those things come a little reactionary, you know, like the car's always stuck. Let's try it. Let's try a motorbike, you know. But if you really look at or talk to people who have seen enough different models for running service, you, you can look at your customer base and the population and come up with a, a real service model and then you know, strategically go and present what you want to each customer, you know, look at each customer, look at how they're spending money with you and where they spend money with you. And then think of, you know, what is the service we can offer them that will get them to engage more? You know, you may not get a mark contract with every customer on day one, but, you know, maybe they've got mechanics and they like their mechanics, but they don't have the know-how. So like, make a deal to send a mechanic one day a week with all the right manuals and all the right computers and, and sell labor that way. You know, actually it's, I'm going to change the tone on that. I don't want to sell a machine. I don't want to sell a part. I don't want to sell a labor hour. I want to sell the fact that I can improve the profitability of the customer's business. Let me get engaged with it. You've got mechanics. You love the guy. He's your son-in-law. He's your brother. Whatever the heck it is. Fine. Yep. Get him there. We'll manage him. We'll train him. We'll give him the tooling. Yep. 
And everybody said, oh, you can't do that. That's going to cost the customer too much. And that gets you back to the shop cost analysis that's been out for 100 years. The customer mechanic costs the same as the dealer mechanic. Come on, that's good. You know, the only thing that they're missing is they're missing the gross profit that we make on the labor. But when you dig deep enough, the customer will actually share financials and be honest about it. I've never had a customer whose actual labor cost per hour is less than 90% of mine. No. And then I start talking about warranty and that difference goes away altogether. So yeah. your, your point yeah. is, the market is slow, baloney. There's, I got backlogs in the shop. Huh. Yep. More and more reasons. If the See, economy is slow, why not, why not subcontract some of your service? And and this is where I said, like, don't don't subcontract or don't run your PM program on like a call us and we'll do all your service and we'll charge you at that time for the service. Like do it well, do it properly, like be full service, you know, track the customer's machine, invest in tracking, tell them when the service is going to be done, you know, and and bill them monthly even if they don't get the service done that month, like it's easier for everyone in unpredictable times. If they're just, you know, it costs this much per hour. And then when the service is due, the money's there to pay for it, you know, and then they'll, from a dealer's perspective, it's a great way to ensure that they're actually going to do the service. Well, they've paid for it already. Sure. The other part of that is it guarantees the cash flow for the dealership. And if if you think about it, it's a subscription model. It is. It's what Amazon has with Amazon Prime. You can set it up on Stripe. Sure. Between your telematics and Stripe, you can auto bill your subscription. I can tell you how to set it up. (laughs) That's what we do for the learning. It's just, it's quite quite simple. Anniversary date of an employee. Okay, it's time for a performance review. Click, there goes the assessment. You got 30 days to get it done. The assessment's in, copy goes to the boss, copy goes to the technician. Let's set a date when you're both, your schedule say you can do it the 27th of the month. That's when, yeah. two o'clock. Congratulations. We can do exactly the same darn thing for an excavator, a mining truck. Mining's easier, actually. So is forestry. So easy. It's, I mean, all, all these models come from mining. Let's be honest. Like I learned everything about how to run mark contracts on construction equipment from what they, what we were doing in mining equipment. They're just so much further ahead. They put on way more hours. They're more predictable. The machines don't, you know, disappear to a different site overnight. Um, but all the models work. Yeah. They're just slightly more complex. Yeah. With, with mining. And if we use that as an example, there might be 10 major customers on the planet now. Yeah. And they're all huge. Yeah, and they're all financial institutions. It's not about the ore they mine; it's how they make money. Yeah, where it gets complicated is when you come down to the smaller equipment. The man who owns one to three machines, he's a independent contractor. He's got a skid steer, a, a, a Takeuchi, uh, and off he goes. He's got his truck. He hauls it around in a in a dump truck. Yeah, those guys get more complicated. Then you know, I used to tease people and say. I, I want to do all that work and you're going to run up, up against a customer who's going to say, well, wait a second, I'm, I'm Mets. I'm going to do all your maintenance for you. You're going to be able to spend more time with your wife. 
Mm-hmm. The only time I ran into objections is when the guy really didn't want to do that. Right. But sell to his wife anyway. That's, yeah, that's right. That's it. She's the one that pays the bills. Yeah. I, I think all of these models or experiences need to start from where you know it works. Yep. You know, we talk about like digital sales of equipment. And years ago, that was just crazy. Like no one's going to buy a machine on the internet. And now we're seeing pretty easily and pretty commonly compact equipment selling right on the internet, transacted there, machines just delivered, you know, and, and it just creeps up. Yep. And, and I think learning how to sell service, it's easy when you've got like an ag customer, uh, a quarry, and that's where you're, you know, you know, the machines or a big contractor and you know where their machines are, but piece by piece, you need to learn from what you're doing and how that now applies. Like, what can I do better now? How do I stand this better? So now I can talk to a smaller guy and a smaller guy, you know, how do I change my business so that it fits them? Yeah. And, and like you say, find what, find the success story within the business and see what another sector of the market could take that and then go over there and do it and then just keep repeating it. Yep. Sooner or later it'll blow up and everything will be great. Yep. You know, it, 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 to some degree, I'll give the dealer group a pass because we haven't been able to find the technicians. But it's funny, over the last 60 to 90 days, Steve Johnson, the former vice president of the AAD Foundation, who certified the technical schools, and I've been talking to technical schools and junior colleges, they all want workforce development for their clients. So that's the car dealers, the farmers, the you know, wherever, all over the place. And they, with the computers now and the internet, a small town gets just as much service as a big town. Yeah. That's a very seriously different circumstance. Yeah. Where we run into trouble there is that's why Bezos and Musk are going to have a competing satellite service where we'll have internet services from a satellite. That's the only thing that's standing in the way. Yeah. You know, I get... I, I, I have trouble here on the island um, between three in the morning and six in the morning, I get terrible service and I'm convinced nobody's acknowledging it, but I'm convinced that's the military time that mm. the data transmission gets sucked up by the military, the Navy and the army yeah. and air force that are here. They're sending but, all their stuff. Yeah. Well, I, I run 200 to 500 MPSs normally yeah. Between three and six in the morning, it can be six to 12. Yeah. You know, it's it, it, so again, it's all pointing into the same direction, isn't it? If you can, yeah. if you can create a model for your labor to maintain and repair things, keep things in working order, don't charge by the bill, charge a subscription monthly. Whether yep. it's used or not is a separate thing. It'll be used as is necessary. So where where it really started happening for me about 10 or 15 years ago was maintenance contracts. Everybody used to sell it annually. Mm. I said, Baloney, we're going to sell you a 5,000-hour maintenance contract, 10,000-hour maintenance contract. We're going to, it might take five years. I don't care. Yeah. And we're going to prorate the charges, make it easy for you. Mm-hmm. Oh, it, it, we have to change how we look at the business. And, and you're exposing that service 
is almost immune from any economic cycle. Is I've, never, point. I've never seen it go down. I don't think you've ever seen service go down, you know, unless, unless your service is completely related to sales. Well, and, and there are, if it's service for service, then it's, then it's pretty immune or it's, it is immune. Um, and, and it's, it's about engagement. Like you cannot, especially when things slow down or if you're a dealer, you know, trying to develop a market for a new brand or, you know, you're new to it, you know, it, it is the way to stay in touch with your customers, the easiest way and bring the most value. Like your customer feels appreciated, your customer feels supported, uh, and failing to serve, to provide that, um, really exposes you to very easy pickoffs by competitive dealers. So yeah. I, I, I do want to go back to the the, the, the the service technician availability thing. I think we often talk about like the, the global context and then that may not apply to the singular, like a, to a, a very local or a small organization, right? If you're a huge dealer, you know, and you've got high market share, you you feel the changes in the market. But for smaller organizations, even though it is a you know a, a larger industry problem to find technicians, you don't need all the technicians in the industry. You don't need to have all the technicians to service all the machines. You need enough technicians to service the customers you have, and that's a very different problem than you know the general labor supply problem of technicians in our industry. And if you, if you have 10 mechanics and you need 20, you only need to find 10. They're hard to find, but there are 10 out there. You know, the whole industry may say it's impossible to find technicians, but if you need 10 technicians, you can find them. It, it, we, could, we can find any technicians. You know, everybody says that to me all the time. I can't find technicians, so I can't get excited about, I don't want to add service bays. I, I don't want to add locations because I, I can't find technicians. I, I, the, the dilemma is not finding technicians. The dilemma is keeping technicians. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a very different ballgame. Working conditions, tooling, safety, progressions, training, development, all of those things that are important for a person in their career. Yep. We, we start somebody at 20, 25 years old, and we'd like to have them there for the next 40 years. Yep. But we don't treat them that way at all. Engagement seems to be something that almost every worker out there wants. You've been lucky enough to be, and so have I, to be engaged in what we do. But a lot of people are being treated like they're tools in a toolbox, Mets. And, and that doesn't have a future. That's not sustainable. So, yeah, going from 10 technicians to 20, we, we can do that in three months. Easy. Keeping my 20 technicians. Mm-hmm. The next 90 days. Now that's a different ballgame. It's obscene to me how much turnover there is in the mechanical staff. Yeah. And there part of that is benefits, part of its working conditions, part of it is wages. I had a case yeah. a couple people like to blame ago. it on wages. Well, no, I had a case a couple of weeks ago where a, a man moved in the same city, in the same yeah. industry, from 70 grand to 120 grand. Yeah. So different companies value job functions differently. And that's yep. not a sustainable position. The same thing in, in I can't find technicians. That's not a sustainable te- position. It's just like selling equipment. I can't get equipment. Might, might as well not have a salesman. Yeah. Get over it. You're, you're absolutely right. It's 
we can find technicians. Yep. Yeah, the, the, the global or the industry-wide issue does not necessarily affect every single dealer. So well, in, and, in, in a territory in Quebec, you know, you've got, say, 10 dealers, just to pull a number. It's bigger than that, but say 10. The relative positioning, ranking, size is reasonably static. It's going to take a long time for a guy who's in the number three market share position to get to number two or get to number one. You don't yeah. just wave a wand and all of a sudden that's done. You no. know, so it's you, you got to start. I think that's the whole point you're making. Find something that works. Find another place that it would work in and start. Yeah. No more excuses. What's the what's the main reason that the biggest dealers don't lose their position? It's because they have installed base. They have installed base of equipment. They have installed service and parts sales, and they're engaged with their customer every day. That's why they don't lose their position. They they get to talk to their customers every day. They found a way and the reason other people have a hard time is because they only see them infrequently or when they're trying to get the sale or, you know, three years after they sold the first machine and they should remember, they should go check to see if they need another one because they haven't found a way to engage. It's, it's one of the reasons the incumbents, the biggest dealers remain in their position is because of the population and that they service it. Yeah. If that doesn't speak to the importance of service, Otherwise, why wouldn't someone just steal market share from one dealer to the next, you know, because it, if switch brands, whatever, good deals, and it could wipe out a dealer really quickly. But if you have that base, then you have, you're still talking to that customer that didn't buy from you that year. And you're talking to them maybe more than the person that they that got a sale away from you. So yeah, what, it, what it comes down to, from my perspective, you're calling it engagement. I call it market coverage. Yep. We, we, we don't have a strategy that, is allowing us to retain customers. Engagement's the only way, talking to them. Yep. You know, buying patterns, customer retention, two of the things that Winsby does particularly well, Steve Clegg and Debbie Freaks. Anytime a customer's buying pattern changes or somebody calls into the parts department and the parts department person who answers the phone and deals with that customer should be able to see on their screen, hey, Matt, good to hear from you. I haven't, you haven't bought anything from us since January 17th, 2016. Yep. Where have you been? Yeah. You know? Yeah. Just having yeah. that kind of knowledge. You know, the before we started, we were talking about the old paper to glass, Alex Schussler's computerization that we've been going through and and how you're building an ERP now that. It's a completely different platform. We'll save that for another day, but it's all engagement, isn't it? It is. Yeah, it's involvement. I, 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 try, I like to put it into the term engagement because it's, you know, modern and digital and it's the word people like to use. Why It's Facebook's favorite word, you know. They're, they're all about engagement, keeping the customer engaged. I mean, we should learn from that. See, there, there's that generational thing again. You younger guys are giving us older guys heart, heart attacks, you know. What's this technology <laughs> i got to catch up with, you know? But it's, no, it's absolutely true. How you frame things, how you present things, it becomes critically important. Yeah. 
So I think we've we've talked about the service side of the business protecting us against recessions or economic slowdowns. Anything else you want to bring into it before we wrap this up? I, th- I think now is the time. I mean, the, the biggest problem with economic change is that we're slow to respond to it. We think it'll last forever when it's good. We're terrified that it's going to be terrible forever when it's bad. And, you know, you uh, make hay when the sun shines. Um, and so now is the time to figure out how to put these programs, this communication with your customer in place while it's a good time while people aren't you know when things do slow down they are going to be focused i found that you know when covid started some of the things i was working on very hard to engage people in because they were you know batting down the hatches and trying to make it go so but those people that i'd been working with before that they stayed and so now while things are good and while people are more willing to say yes to you know, a per hour PM program that you'll put a tracker on the machines for, um, they'll say yes much more easily now. So now's the time to talk about it. Yeah, I agree. I, I agree. The The pandemic showed us 27 months. We compressed a lot of change into that 27 months. A lot of people did reflection on how they did things, what they did, why they did it, etc. We're in the same place now with the interest rates going up. It's been, it's been roughly... 40 years where we've had, except for the 2008 blip, where interest rates and inflation have been rather static, not yeah. really much change. So now, in the course of a month, we'll see prime go up by a point and a half if they turn out to be true on Wednesday. That's, that's causing a lot of people in my age block, and we're risk averse. We don't really go for change. We like what we got. We're, we're incumbents. You know, we, we don't yeah. want to lose it. Don't want to take a risk. It might screw something up. Now is precisely the time to be going out and finding out what the customer wants. And you're going to have to change how you treat yeah. the customer. And that's okay. Whatever the customer wants is what we got to give. Yeah. You know, I wrote a blog a, a couple of weeks, three weeks ago, was just say yes. What do you want? Okay. Yeah, I'll do that. Just say yes. Let's go. Yeah. I was yeah, that, I mean, it was a rough, wonderful <laughs> subject. It was a great um, a great blog. I, I appreciate it and thank you. And and thank you for this uh chat. I think we expanded hey, on you're welcome. I I I owed you some yeah, you I always I, I owed you something good after uh, many weeks of silence. Well, I, I always want to have you in my debt. I don't want it to be the other way around. Remember that. <laughs> 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 Thanks, Matt. You got anything you want to add before I close this? No, I, I just love doing this. Okay. So, well, thank you, Matt, for, for, for this chat, this candid conversation. And thank you to everybody listening. We'll hope you'll tune in to another candid conversation in the near future. Mahalo. Thank you for listening to our podcast. We appreciate your support. Should you have any thoughts or comments, please don't hesitate to contact us at www.learningwithoutscars.com. The time is now. Mahalo.